Good morning. Good to see you guys today. Um, so glad to have you guys here this morning. So we, are, we started a new series last week uh, called Life Upside Down. And this is all about the Sermon on the Mount. And I think most have heard about that sermon. It's probably Christ's most famous sermon he ever preached. And so we're doing a bunch of sermons about the sermon. And uh, so we're doing, this will be Matthew 5 through 7, and we'll call this Life Upside Down. Then we're going to do a series called Life Inside Out, which details the story of nine people that had their lives changed by Jesus. That'll be called Life Inside Out on Matthew 8 through 10 in a few weeks. So this first picture I want to show you is overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And this is what they think may have been the mount or the hill that Jesus gave this sermon on. Of course, I don't think that road and that car were there back when that happened, but um, don't believe so. I just found out a couple weeks ago that uh, my wife and I are supposed to go to Israel in 2021, so we're excited about that. Anyone here ever been to Israel? Raise your hand. Oh, you've been. Wow. Oh, wow. We have one, two people. All right. Two people. So we will join an exclusive club, apparently, of people who have been able to go. Um, so excited about doing that in a couple of years. And last week I told you that in Matthew 4, Jesus is preaching and he's healing in Galilee. And these great crowds are following him. Um, obviously because they want to see, part, partly they want to see a show. And so what does Jesus do whenever great crowds follow him? Well, he does something that we don't normally think he would do, and that's he moves away. He goes to a mount, and he, his disciples follow him there. I think he does this because he wants disciples, not just crowds. He doesn't want just the crowd. He wants people to follow him. So he moves to a spot where he can teach, and disciples crowd around him. Now, when he arrives on this mount, he sits down. Now, today, of course, when we teach, we stand up and we yell at you from a stage, usually. But Jesus, because the rabbis back then, they would, when they would assume the place of authority, that meant you would sit down to teach. And so Jesus sits down, and his intent is not to rest, but to teach. And so he teaches this, this sermon sitting down. Now, um, what's the message of the sermon? I told you last week, it's very simple. It's repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We discussed this all last week. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, this is not a warm and fuzzy, feel-good message. I know a lot of us think of in the church we need to make everything just warm and fuzzy, feel good. That's not how Jesus preached and not how we should preach either. Of course we have love and compassion, but we've got to also um, teach truth, and that's what Jesus did in this sermon especially. We're going to see in this sermon how He's calling us to live this upside-down kingdom kind of life. And you're going to see that especially play out today. Today's section we're going to look at is what's known as the Beatitudes. And this comes from the Latin word, providence, where, give me some help here. What is the Latin word that this comes from? Do you know? Providencers? No? Sorry for calling you out. No. It comes from the Latin Beatus, which means blessed or happy. Now, this is more than like temporary happiness. Temporary hap happiness would be based on circumstances, like if Texas won last night, then some of you guys would be happy. Hey, I was pulling for Texas last night. I'm, I'm kind of a bandwagoner, you know, sort of. But circumstances 
can lead to happiness, temporary, but, but Christ is talking about a state of well-being. It's, it's much deeper than how we think of happiness. Now, the disciples, they expected to have this really powerful, they were expecting this powerful political Messiah to show up. So when Jesus shows up and they start to wonder and question, is he the Messiah that we've heard the prophets talk about? They're expecting to be, it to be a powerful political kingdom, and they're expecting themselves to have a right-hand place of authority next to him in this powerful political kingdom. So Jesus, the words he says in the sermon are really surprising because this, he shows that this is an upside-down kingdom. And the kind of people that are needed for this kingdom are the opposite of what you might think. So in this, in this sermon, Jesus is doing something called setting the expectation for what they're supposed to expect, what a life with him is going to look like, what this upside-down kingdom is going to look like. So when I think of setting the expectation, I, think of, I can think of lots of things, but I'll, I'll tell you about one. Uh, we'll start sign-ups in a couple of weeks for our mission trips for the summer for high school. And we do this annual trip to New York City every year. And one thing I do over the course of several meetings is I try to set the expectation for what we're going to do in New York. Because, I mean, a lot of you guys, you're thinking, you're, all you're thinking about is we get to go to New York City. And you're thinking about all that fun stuff about New York And that's what you're focusing on, and I understand that. But we try to set the expectation. And one of the ways we try to do that is we set the expectation where you are going to stay when you go to New York City. Because... It is not a hotel. It is not in the hotel category. It is in a whole other category that we try to talk about whenever we go there. And, and those that have been know um, the place is called New York School of Urban Ministry, the acronym NISOM. And I call it not so NISOM. Okay, that's what it is. And so. We, but listen, we, we think it's good to rough it a little bit. It's a mission trip. You should feel the, the squeeze a little bit, right? And uh, so we set the expectation. And, and every year, there are people that show up. We, we, we say it all in the meetings. There are people that show up, and they're just, you can just tell they've just had it with NISOM by the end of the week, right? They're just done with it. They're ready to go home. And I get it. I get it. But we set the expectation so they know what they're getting themselves into. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this sermon, is setting the expectation of, of what discipleship with him looks like. And it really goes against the grain of what these people are expecting. I'm taking a lot of today's outline from a, a really good study by Jen Wilkin on this sermon. So you, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to be using her outline today as we talk to this part of the sermon. And the first four things we're going to talk about is really man's relationship to God and the second half is man's relationship to man, or women's relationship. You get the idea, but it's mankind. So there's two things Christ shows us in the Beatitudes. The first is where character takes root. The second is, the second is how character bears fruit. So we'll cover where does character take root, and look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. We'll start there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we see here, character takes root in spiritual poverty. So most of us think, when we read that verse, we think that means physical poverty. We think of okay, the poor in spirit or someone who's physically poor. It's not about that. He's really talking about spiritual poverty. 
So what does that mean exactly? We have to understand what physical poverty is to understand what spiritual poverty is. So physical poverty is simply not having enough resources, right? Not having sufficient resources. So what is the worst example of poverty you have ever seen? The worst example of physical poverty you've ever seen. For me, it was on a mission trip in Mexico many, many years ago. And we're in the middle of this town square. And it's Tiffany. Where's Tiffany? Howard, is she here? There she is right there. So we went to go see her family. They were missionaries in Mexico in a little town called uh, Amielco, which is close to Querétaro. How's my accent? Is it good? Not, not so good. She shook her head no. Okay. So um, we go to... We're in the middle of this town square, and there was this man who is in the town square, and he's laying on one of those boards with wheels on it that you would go under a car with to fix a, a vehicle. And the man has no legs. He's missing an arm. And I think he had part of his other arm, and he's got his arm just sort of curled over this this. Um, this bell, this, this little string that has bells on it, and he's just jingling the bells. And you can just tell this man has no ability to do anything with himself. He has, he has no resources. And th- this is this, way's, this man's way of, of trying to get money, obviously. And, and someone had to bring him there. The man couldn't even bring himself to the location that he was at. One of the most just sad examples of, of poverty I've seen firsthand. Someone who can't do anything for themselves. So that's physical poverty. So what does it mean to be spiritually poor? What is spiritual poverty? So think of someone who can't do anything for themselves physically. When we think of ourselves in the spiritual sense, it's understanding that you and I have no resources to save ourselves before God whatsoever. That we are spiritually poor. We don't have anything to bring to God. We have no resources in in ourselves to bring to Him. And so we are, in a sense, spiritually poor. And this, Jesus says that this is the kind of person, this is where salvation begins. You have to understand how spiritually impoverished you are in order for you to come to Christ for salvation and a relationship with him. And then in verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Character takes root in godly grief over sin. Verse 4 is often used at funerals, right? But it's not talking about mourning for someone who's passed away. This is talking about grieving over our own sin. I think most of us treat sin pretty casually, don't we? We say things like, you know, yeah, we all mess up. I mean, everyone's human. And that's true. But we, we use that as a ticket for us to treat sin, I think, pretty casually most of the time. So when's the last time that you, that you grieved or mourned over your sin? When's the last time you grieved or mourned over sin? Because I think most of us hold to this cheap view of grace, don't we? I'm going to put this next quote up on the screen. We all want grace, but in order to be comforted by that grace, we need to understand the depth of the offense. 
Most of us want to jump so quickly to grace, and we forget that there needs to be a mourning and a grieving over our sin. And for grace to really be grace, and for grace to really bring comfort to us, we've got to understand the depth of the offense. Because if we do not, listen, grace, true grace, never glosses over sin. Most of us think of grace as just like, yeah, it's just kind of a, it's just a dismissal of sin. No, that's not what grace is. For us to understand grace, we have to understand the depth of the offense and truly mourn and grieve over our sin. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. And the church in Corinth was a very dysfunctional place. If you think the church is messed up today, I mean, it is, but it also was back then too, right? And so Paul writes them a letter so 1 Corinthians was his first letter to them. And 1 Corinthians is this intense, hard-hitting letter to the Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Paul gives them a sorry, not sorry for sending the first letter. And, and look at uh, on the screen here, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 to 10. Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, meaning 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. So that's the sorry, not sorry. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief is different than worldly grief. I think of, there's so many examples in the news of someone with a, a big public name and they had this shameful public downfall. And if the person doesn't come to know Christ through that, we see a lot of worldly grief. We see tears. We see shame. We see them go to rehab. We see them go get treatment of some kind. But they often will come back and it's re- we've really just seen worldly grief. They've, just, they've lost the world's approval. And so there's worldly grief. But listen, when you see true repentance, you see godly sorrow, which leads to godly repentance and a true heart change. So it's, it's different. It's different than how we think of worldly grief. Look at, um, at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Character, we see in this passage, character takes root root in meekness. When we hear the word meekness, what word do we often think of? Any idea? It rhymes with meek. Weak, right? We think of weakness. Like we instantly think of, yeah, that we don't say it, but we think of those being synonyms. That's not what it's talking about. Meekness is not is not the same thing as weakness. Here's a definition of what it means to be meek. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. So a meek person is not occupied with self. They don't insist on a set of rights. I think we live in a culture today where everyone demands their rights. Everyone's talking about their rights to do this, their rights to do that. And so everyone demands their rights. And it happens a lot in the church as well. But someone who is meek is someone who's not thinking of themselves and they don't demand a list of rights because they're a meek person. So what do you all feel entitled to? 
in your everyday life, in your family, in your school? What do you feel entitled to as you think about your own life? What are the things that cause you to just kind of well up with anger when you don't get certain things? What do you feel entitled to in your life? The meek person says to God, not my will, but your will. And I want to ask you this question. Who does that sound like? Jesus, right? That's always a good answer. Jesus. Not my will, but your will. So Jesus, when he was about to die on the cross, he prays to his father and he says, you know, not my will, but your will be done. Jen Wilkins says it like this. When we set aside our will, we, rec- we recognize everything in this life is grace. When we set aside our will, our agenda, we begin to recognize everything in this life as grace. And I think back, I'll probably be tying in some things about things I heard Pastor Gary say to us um, the next few weeks, just as we kind of continue to just grieve and mourn as a church, as we walk through this really tough time together. Um, And something that he said in his last sermon that I'll never forget, he preached it on August 11th, and he stood in front of the church and he said, I look back over the last six years, and he did did not know that was going to be his last sermon. He didn't know it. But he said, I look over these six years, and I just thank God for that there's been no pain. And he was in pain for the last month of his time with us. But he said, I thank God for there not being any pain. And for me, I've had a hard time latching on to things to be thankful for as he has walked through this really tough disease. And here's a man standing in front of the church saying, I thank God that he spared me of pain. And he could say that because he did not feel like he had rights. He didn't feel like he had, he was entitled to some things. I think there was some meekness in his life in that, in that regard. And he realized that every day was an act of God's grace. And he lived that out in front of us. Look down at verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Character takes root in our hunger and thirst for the things of God. When we start following Jesus, most of us, if we obey at all, we just obey begrudgingly, don't we? We just, we're like, okay, I, I know that Christians are supposed to do this and not supposed to do this, and I guess I'll do those things and not do those things. And there's often this begrudging sort of motive behind our obedience if we obey at all. But Jesus, look in this verse. He says, he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus wants us to have a hunger and a thirst, like a desire for the things of him. And this is not just talking about, righteousness is not just talking about rule following, but righteousness is talking about your position before Christ. So there's legal righteousness, which is, I am forgiven, I am fully justified before Christ, not because of my own works, but because of his work on the cross. That's justification. But there's also sanctification, which is growth in righteousness. Yes, growth in moral righteousness. The mistake that a lot of Christians make is they think, that because of their position in Christ, that how they behave doesn't matter. 
That's not biblical. Your position and your identity should lead to life change. So this legal righteousness will lead to, yes, it will lead to a difference in how we behave and how we live out our lives. At this time, many of the Jews only valued external obedience. And so Jesus, in the sermon, Jesus takes everything to the heart. You're going to see a lot of this theme in the sermon. Jesus takes everything to the heart and cuts to the heart because the Jewish people at that time thought of everything being external. Obedience just meant external. And so Jesus takes it to the heart when he gives this sermon. When we allow God to change us, he changes even our desires. And of course we can desire sin as Christians. Of course we do sometimes. But there should be this deeper desire that desires righteousness. And that is the transforming work of God in our lives once we come to know him. So what are you hungry for? What are you thirsty for? And listen, if you are sitting here this morning and you say, I, I, don't, I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, do you know the first prayer that you should be praying then is, God, give me this hunger. Give me a hunger for the things of you. Give me a desire for the things of you. Like right now, I don't. Do you know that honest prayer is the best place for you to begin? It's why I love the Psalms. Because so many of you will often come to us as leaders and say things like, yeah, I just don't, I don't really desire God right now. And it's as if you're just waiting for some external switch to be flipped, like someone else to do it for you. And you don't realize that maybe the best thing you can do right now is pray honestly to God and just tell him where you're at. Do like what the Psalms do, where David's just pouring his heart out to God saying, God, where are you? God, I don't sense you. I don't feel you. I don't know where your presence is. I think God put that in the Bible so that we might pray some of the same things because he wants us to be honest with him. So maybe your first prayer needs to be, God, I don't desire, I don't hunger, and I want to, and I want you to change me. That might be where our heart needs to be. So I'm going to summarize this first section because I want you to see how these four things fit together. First, we see the poor in spirit, so someone who is spiritually bankrupt. So it looks like on the surface, these are just disconnected points, right? But they're actually connected. So the poor in spirit, so someone who realizes they're spiritually bankrupt before God, that should lead to someone mourning over their sin, mourning their spiritual bankruptcy, which should then lead to meekness because you realize how spiritually bankrupt you are and you've mourned and grieved over your sin, which leads to meekness, knowing everything in this life is because of grace and that you don't have any rights. And that should lead to this hunger and thirst for righteousness in our walk with Christ. So these first four that we've talked about, they, they deal with um, the vertical. This is us and God. And now we're going to get into the horizontal. This is like us and other people. And listen, I hear this a lot or something like this in the church a lot. I'll hear Christians say things like, you know, yeah, me and God, like we're, we're okay, we're good. It's the church I have issues with. 
is I want you to see how these are connected. Like, you can't ever say, you know, me and God, we're good. But the church, I just don't like the church because the Sermon on the Mount, these first four ideas are about you and God. But the next four are about you and other people. With that, go ahead and discuss your first three questions at your table. Just your first three. Okay, you guys can come back to some of those questions if you want at the end. We're going to finish out these last few verses and have some more discussion here at the end. So now I want to ask the question now, how does character bear fruit? How is fruit born out in our lives in the areas that Christ is talking about? So at verse 7, go to verse 7. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So character bears the fruit of compassion. Now, when it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, this is not promoting a works-based salvation. It's not saying, you know, you better, you better show people mercy, because if you don't, like, I'm not going to show you mercy. It does sound like that, but it's not referring to it in that way. What Jesus is saying is when, if you're someone who's truly transformed by the gospel, if you're someone that truly understands grace and mercy, and you've truly received mercy from God, then you'll be simply a person that extends mercy. It's why, if you're a person that does not know how to show mercy to other people, then others might have a right to look at you and say, are you sure you're a Christian? Do you really know Jesus? Because if you've, if you've received mercy, then why are we not people that extend mercy to other people? And so it's, it's referring to the life change that happens inevitably from someone who has truly received mercy from God. They'll become vessels of mercy to others. So being a person of mercy, so here's a real simple question. Do you forgive people? Do you forgive? Do you harbor bitterness and anger and resentment? Are you someone that shows mercy to other people? And I know one of the things we all feel when, when, when we're having to forgive someone is we say, well, they don't deserve it. Well, that's, that's kind of what forgiveness is, right? We don't deserve it. No one deserves it. So for us to, even in our hearts, say, but they don't deserve. Well, neither do you. Neither do I. So you're a per- are you a person that extends mercy to other people? Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Character bears f- the fruit of purification. So the Sermon on the Mount, as I said, goes well beyond external obedience. It goes to the heart. Everything Christ talks about is going to go straight to the heart. So the pure in heart does not mean that you don't struggle with sin. Let's get that right out of the gate. Pure in heart does not mean that you don't struggle with sin. Do you understand that? But pure in heart means that your whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and man. So someone, what I often will say to students, if I'm talking to a student about a sin struggle in their life, I will often say something like this. You know, it's not a matter of just whether or not you sinned, but it's a matter of how you respond to your sin. So, yeah, does sin matter? Of course it does. I'm not downplaying sin. But once someone has fallen in, into sin, 
or sin struggles, I always say to people, what matters is how you respond to it. So when I think of King David who fell into some heinous sin, but eventually he responded in repentance. It took some time, but eventually he responded in repentance. So are you someone that responds in repentance when you sin? So one way to be pure in heart is to let the gospel work itself out in your life in such a way that you are someone that confesses your sin to God. You confess and acknowledge your sin to other people. And you respond to sin in repentance. Are you someone who does this? And then look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So character bears the fruit of reconciliation. When we hear the word peacemaker, we often think of someone who never rocks the boat, never causes controversy. But did Jesus, did he rock the boat? Did he cause some controversy? Yes, he did. So peacemaker is different than peacekeeper. Peacekeeper, a peacekeeper is okay with the status quo. That is someone who just doesn't want to cause any stir, doesn't want to cause controversy. A peacekeeper avoids conflict at all cost. A peacekeeper will sacrifice truth. They will sacrifice justice so they can keep what they think is peace. But a peacemaker might actually cause some conflict to bring about real peace. How does someone do this? Think how Jesus did this. How does Jesus bring peace between God and man? Because whenever, if we're going to be brought into relationship with God through the work of Jesus on the cross, we've got to acknowledge some hard things about ourselves. We've got to acknowledge our spiritual poverty before God. That's a hard reality. That does not feel like peace. But it ultimately brings peace because we're acknowledging the truth about ourselves and the truth about who God is. Jesus turned the Jewish religious establishment upside down, which led to his death. That wasn't very peaceful. Jesus said when people follow him, It was going to turn family against each other. That didn't sound like peace to me. Because Jesus wants to be a peacemaker, truly bringing peace between God and man, which leads to real peace between man and man, mankind and mankind. True peace. He's about being a true peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper. So you might say it like this. Avoiding truth leads to peacekeeping. Embracing truth leads to peacemaking. So are you at peace with God? Have you acknowledged your own spiritual impoverishment and truly desire to be at peace with God? Acknowledge this hard reality about yourself that you're, that you're poor before God, have nothing to offer Him. You're totally insufficient in yourself to bring anything to Him. And this is a starting point for someone to be truly at peace made at peace with God, and eventually will make peace in your relationships. So what happens when someone wants to be a true peacemaker, and that does cause a stir and create some controversy, because those are some hard, real truths. 
that are tied up in that idea of peacemaking, right? Verse 10 happens. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Character bears the fruit of suffering just like Jesus. Now, when I read that verse, I know where some of your minds go. You you think to yourself, all the examples in your life of being persecuted for the sake of Christ, and that might happen in your life, it might, but be careful because sometimes we get persecuted for just being a jerk, right? Like we think we're doing it for a good cause. We think that we're, you know, shoving the Bible in someone's face and shoving the gospel in their face and doing it in this mean, belligerent way. And we get some kickback and we're like, see, verse 10 happened to me. That's not what it's talking about. There's going to be some natural stir, some natural controversy. If you're a person, even if you're a person that loves people well and you speak truth, that's going to create some persecution. So someone who is truly trying to be a peacemaker in the way that God's calling us to, you are going to get persecuted for your faith. We don't go out of our way to create the situation. But we are going to get persecuted for our faith. And Jesus, if Jesus himself, if Jesus subjected himself to it, then you must know that none of us are above it. None of us are above getting persecuted. It kind of drives me crazy whenever in our culture, especially here in the U.S., there are a lot of Christians here in the U.S. that think that we are above persecution. And so when our government does things, and listen, I pray for religious freedom. I want religious freedom. But when we don't get it, I'm not going to shout into the streets and kind of ruin my witness and testimony and demand it because I don't have a right. I'm not entitled to it. If we have it, it's a blessing, and I'm thankful for it. But listen, we don't want to distract from the gospel message itself and be louder about our rights for religious freedom than we are about the gospel itself. We need to make sure that we are, are squarely focused on the gospel and not about our rights. Because here's the deal. Jesus himself subjected himself to persecution all the way to his death. What makes me think that I'm above that? That I'm above the treatment that Jesus received. And they did it, and it was the government who did it. And so just know that none of us are above the suffering that Jesus himself subjected himself to. And so this is what discipleship looks like. If you're a Christian, this is what you've gotten yourself into. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, this is the cost of discipleship. So Jesus didn't just set the expectation. He set the example for us to follow. 
So go ahead and do your last few questions there at your tables.